This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. This podcast is Shareable. I'm your host, Jeff Gibbard, commonly known as the world's most handsome strategist and professional speaker. I'm also a superhero. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single Shareable episode. And that's it. That's the intro. Short and sweet. Let's get to the show. All right, man, here we are. We're back on Shareable. And today my guest is Clint Pulver. Clint, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Uh, I'm so jazzed to have you on the show, man. Tell people who you are, what you do, what's your deal. My name is Clint Pulver, and I'm a professional speaker, author, and drummer. I've spent uh, 22 years traveling, recording, and playing drums professionally. And then I've spent the last five years as the undercover millennial. Going, It's kind of like an undercover boss without the makeup, uh, going into organizations as an employee who's looking, or a potential employee who's looking for a job. And uh, we're interviewing employees, getting their truth. And uh, man, I, I freaking love it. And then, I, and then you know, before uh, COVID hit, I was speaking all over the world and, and doing the speaking world uh, thing. And now we're doing it all virtually. Everything's changed. And, uh, but yeah, man, I love it and super blessed. Still lots to be grateful for. New books coming out. Uh, we're busy. Cool, man. And the new book is, um, it's, I love it here, how great leaders create organizations, their people never want to leave, right? You got it, dude. Yeah. Okay, awesome. All of the research from the five years of doing this, uh, we put it into one book. I will never do it again. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but it launches whether we're ready or not, April 13th. And uh, that is ever. awesome. That's awesome. Clint, you and I have like such similar past years or so. I, I see from Instagram that you just had a daughter. I just had a daughter nine months ago. Congratulations. Can be the best thing that ever happened to you. Congratulations to you. Yeah. You're probably not getting a ton of sleep. Um, yeah, man. It's, okay a, it's a so far. She's, we've been doing the sleep training, so she actually sleeps the night through, but in the early days, yeah, it was, uh, it, yeah. Was, it was a rough one. Yeah. Yeah, it is, man. No, dude, baby girls are just, oh, man. how many kids? Uh, is my first kid. So, um, yeah, it's awesome. You are going to love it. Like it's so, it, I remember it's so funny. Like I'm like, I have a nine month old, so it's not like it's been that long, but like, I remember when she first popped out and I was like, oh, man, I love this kid so much. I can't imagine I could possibly love her more. And then like, it just, it goes from there. Like I find myself being like a parent talking about like kids, the way parents talk about kids and all that stuff. So, so before we go down that whole tangent, um, the other thing is I, I, um, I'm also releasing a book, but it's coming out in January, 2022. So I, I also hear you on that, that that is, it's like having your own baby, uh, to, to go through that process. It's a process. It's a journey. Like, and I think like if you do it right, it's hard. It really takes a ton of time, but you know, there's like people like, all right, Oh, I kick out 50 books a year. I'm like, how, yeah. how do you do that? And, you know, the self-publishing world, it's a different world. But when you're really trying to kind of do it right, and especially when it's research-based, it just takes time. And I'm not like a writer. Like for me, like sit down for hours. And yeah. Just well, tapping on the keys is a little bit like drumming, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, it, but, but dude, it's, it's nauseating to me. It was, it was very difficult. So I'm All right, glad well, we're going to, we're, you're going to be putting it out and there's, there's going to be a lot of gems in there because just seeing from the way that you speak and uh, you know, looking into kind of your catalog of ideas um, I have no doubt that this book is going to be absolutely fire. So where I really want to start with you is talking about this undercover millennial thing that you're doing because I absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my book is going to be on leadership. I love talking about leadership. I love talking about leadership that gets people to want to stay in one place, to love their job, to come in feeling pers- uh, purpose and passion. So like you and I are totally aligned on this. You're doing this undercover, millenn- undercover uh, millennial thing. 
tell me a little bit about it. So like, I get the idea. And for those you, you described at the beginning, it's this kind of like undercover boss thing. You go in, you're applying for a job and you're questioning people. How long have you been doing it? What's the output of that been? Like, what have you learned? Have you been surprised by anything? Like kind of give us the overview of that. Yeah. So it started five years ago. I was on a, a, in a mentorship group and kind of a mastermind of sorts. We were in New York City and we were meeting with a ton of leaders about their businesses, learning the ins and outs, what's worked, how they became successful. And this one guy that we met with in his sporting goods store had been a CEO for a long time. And we talked about his business and how he needed to change his business to meet the demands of the ever-changing marketplace. He's like, we're on Instagram now, we're doing social media, like the whole old brick and mortar set up a, a store advertising the newspaper is dead. And then he had like this thick New York accent and he was like, you got to adapt or you're going to die. <laughs> I was like, all right, cool. Okay. That's pretty powerful. But then I asked, I said, I said, what about, what about your management style? Have you, have you felt the need to adapt how you manage employees today versus how you managed them 20 years ago? And he said, no. He said, the way I manage today is the same way I managed 20 years ago and I get results. Like it was, I still remember it like literally as if it was yesterday. And it was fascinating to me, Jeff, because here, here's the a guy saying he needs to adapt how he does business to meet the, the demands of a changing market. But when it comes to people, there's no need to change. And we're in his store and I remember looking around and all of his employees were my age or younger. And I thought, I was like, I wonder if they would say the same thing. I, I wonder if they would have like this ideal picture of how wonderful his business was. Yeah, I so love the results for this guy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I, 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 we wrapped up the conversation and I was like, okay, uh, we've got a little bit of time. We had like 35 minutes to kill. And he was like, go get, you know, go, get, go buy some swag. I'll give you 60% off. I didn't want any swag. I just had time to kill. And out of just pure curiosity, I walked up to the first employee that I saw and I looked just like how I look right now. I had a backwards hat on, you know, my Nikes, my joggers. I was literally a customer in the store. And I just walked up and I said, Hey, I'm just curious. Uh, what's it like to work here? And the employee looks back at me, gets really quiet, looks around. Like, I feel like we're doing an illegal drug exchange and, and then, and then spouts off. I, I, I hate my job. I don't like it. I mean, it's just a job. Like, I literally feel like I'm a cog in the wheel. I'm a number. Honestly, I don't even think my managers know I'm, I'm here today. I don't know. It's just, it's just a job. And then I'm like, well, why are you working here? He's like, oh, I've applied to three other places. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe the dude's having a bad day. And so we ended that conversation. Then I just walked up to another employee and then another and another. And at the end of the 35 minutes, I had interviewed six of his employees asked them all the same questions. And at the end of the conversation, five out of the six of his employees at that store said they would not be working for this guy and that company in less than three and a half months. They were all on their way out, every one of them. And here's the thing. It was a moment for me because I got, I got from them some pretty honest and truthful feedback. And I guarantee you that the management, the CEO, the leadership had no idea because they told me, they told me in their mind, it's working. We're doing great. Our employees are amazing. We're taking great care of our people. And that's like the mantra, right? Like our people are our most important asset. Yes, it's a great place to work. Yes, we provide benefits. Yes, we care about our people. 
But is that really the reality of what, what people are thinking? And I remember in corporate America, you know, when I worked in a corporate job, I had some horrible bosses. And if they came to me and they were like, hey, what can I do better? Like, I'm not going to tell you face to face. Like, I'm oh, not going to yeah. like, like, who does that? Who has, I mean, obviously you want to build relationships so strong that they can bear the weight of truth. But most of the time you just don't know that. And unfortunately, most managers have no idea that they are sucking at their job. They have no idea why people are leaving and they think they're just, they're just killing it. And it's like, well, they're dang millennials. Uh, they're just entitled. No, it's you. It is you out of all of the research that we've done. So we've done it for five years. We've interviewed 181 or excuse me. We've worked with 181 organizations and we've interviewed over 10,000 employees undercover. And you, the manager, you are the number one reason why people stay. You are also the number one reason why people leave. And that's what started it, man. That was the, the beginning of the undercover millennial program. And I think out of all of that we've done, we've provided the most real and authentic research on how great leaders were creating organizations that people never wanted to leave. Because it wasn't a survey. Like it wasn't a like, hey, fill this out and let us know what you think. It wasn't a one-on-one -on -one management meeting. It was a millennial talking to a millennial. And I walked in and I created an environment where they could speak truth. Mm -hmm. And 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 that's the unique perspective. Like I, I'm not a I'm not a, a a leadership guru. I would never call myself that. I'm not someone that like. I'm just not. I, I'm not someone who's ran companies or or has been a CEO for 15 years of a Fortune 500 business. Like I'm not. I'm not. But I do offer a perspective for thousand employees who knew when their leaders were getting it right. Uh, I got, Clint, I got to tell you, man, I'm by the end of this conversation, I'm going to convince you otherwise about yourself and your status as a leader. Um, <laughs> because my perspective on it is that leadership is not a title. It's not about your experience of running companies. It's a mindset. And I think based upon even taking the initiative to go out there and kind of check that guy's work and talk to people, uh, that's kind of a pro leadership move. And I know all of the things that you think uh, or that you've, that you've put out there about mentorship and about guidance, about developing people and advocating for them. Like those are all, that's the vernacular of leadership. So by the end of this conversation, my hope is to, to alter your, <laughs> I love it. That. yeah. I love so, so, um, okay. So the manager being the number one reason why people stay or go confirmed by your research. I believe there's also research from Gallup and a number of other organizations that say like basically the, that confirm that the number one reason people leave is their manager. They don't leave jobs. They leave managers, right? That's the expression. And I yep. thoroughly believe that. I think, you know, for me, the word boss is like a, it's like a pejorative. It's a bad word. Uh, because yeah. I think, uh, that's what most people's experiences is being bossed around. It's being, uh, you know, told what to do. And I think your, your explanation of kind of what that manager thought he was doing, right. Or what the company was doing, right. Oh, we benefits, we pay well, or it's missing the crucial and critical under undertone of the whole thing, which is that what people are really craving is, is connection and validation and appreciation and acknowledgement. Um, as I would see it, what are some of the things that you have uncovered in doing this? Maybe that were surprising, um, but I would say before we get to what's surprising, what is what is something that you uncovered that is kind of like, well, obviously this, because as I would see it, the relationship piece is the obvious one, right? Like what most companies get wrong as I see it is that they don't treat their people like people. They treat them like numbers. They treat them as replaceable cogs. 
And it's only when you start acknowledging each individual person's unique gifts and ways of working and everything that you can actually get something out of them. So what have you uncovered in doing this work where you're able to actually get behind that curtain, kind of slide past it, you know, in, in sort of an espionage type way? What have you found out? Yeah, dude. So the, the, coming back to this concept of mentorship was one of the most powerful things. When an employee hated their job, they hated the manager. But when an employee loved their job, they love the mentor. And here's the thing, this, you, you can call it s- s- semantics. You can call it, you know, I don't know. We, we, in my opinion, we look at traditional leadership, the word leadership as someone who leads, right? They stand in the front and they lead. Now the goal is to write support and to, you know, I, I think we mix it up somewhat. There's this traditional leadership of you're the visionary. You are the one that is choosing the direction of where the ship is headed. And your job is to get everybody there, to create followers, right? You're a leader, you have followers, you have people that follow you. However, mentorship is not a title. Mentorship must be earned. You cannot become, this is what was so cool about it. You cannot become a mentor until the mentee invited you into your heart. Yeah. In, in, in every business, Jeff, there were four types of managers and every company. And the two variables that we would categorize these, these managers were based off of two things. Number one is standards. So expectations, the duties of the job, you still have a business to run. I understand that. I get that. But the second variable was connection, the ability to empathize, the soft skills, the intangibles, like no, no employee. When I was undercover, when I said, what's it like to work here? You know, tell me about your boss. You know, would you recommend the company? Nobody said, man, they kill their meetings. They're on time. Like they're scheduling. Like <laughs> how they're like, their time management, their efficiency. They use right fonts and all of their memos. Nobody, nobody out of 10,000 employees. Nobody said that. They always talked about the connection. But. I get it. You still have a business to run. There's still expectations. So those are the two variables, standards, connection. And then the the four types of managers that we found, number one was the removed manager. Number two was the buddy manager. Number three was the controlling manager. And then number four was the mentor manager. And removed manager, they're low on standards, they're low on connection, and so what did that create in the employee workforce? Disengagement. My manager doesn't care. Why should I care? My manager should have retired 20 years from now. And I, I'm miserable. He, they're in the organization, but they're not into the organization, right? Mm-hmm. Second is the buddy manager. This is, I, <laughs> I love these managers. I, personally, they were fun to interview. They were fun to discover. But these are the managers that wanted to be everybody's homies, like these are the managers that they were buddies. They were like, they were tight. This is like the manager that would play Xbox with the employees on the weekends. They didn't want to ruffle feathers. They wanted to be friends. They didn't want to have crucial conversations. They wanted to be liked. And so then what did this create? Entitlement. The sense of almost where the employees became more of the boss than the boss did. Mm-hmm. And then the controller, they're high on standards and they're low on connection. This is that old control command, put your head down, do your job. I don't care about you. You get a paycheck. That's how I show you. I love you. Do your Mm -hmm. job. And that always created rebellion. But the fourth person was the mentor manager and they were equally high on their standards 
as well as their ability to connect. And that created respect. They weren't always liked. They weren't always like homies with everybody, but they were respected. They earned it. And what's crazy, like if you look at like any good story, like a good film, like a good movie, there's always like the hero, right? There's the main character. And then who appears in the story? Like any good movie, any great, like who appears? It's the mentor. Luke Skywalker had Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Rocky. Rocky had Mick. Uh, Katniss Everdeen had Hamish, right? These people that, that come into the story that connect that person to their dreams. It's earned. It's not a title. Like you don't have the position of a supervisor. You're not a, a leader. You're a mentor. You walk with people. You advocate for people. You don't just develop. It's not about how do we get the ship from point A to point B to point C. No, it's about what matters to you and how do I walk the path with you? How do I get you there? How do I connect you to your dreams? And when a manager gained that role, when they became that person, that was what created the greatest amount of loyalty, buy-in, engagement, where people just said, I, I love who I work for because of who they were. Is there a ranking between all four of those? So like as you were as you mentioned the two um, the two elements and then you mentioned that there were four different types, I was like, ah, I smell a matrix right now. And um, and and obviously, you know, when you have the high standards, high connections, and you get to that mentor, it, it's pretty clear that that's like, oh, that's the win, right? That's what we're looking that's for. And I think the way you just explained it perfectly mirrors it mirrors everything that I'm saying in my book, The Lovable Leader. You know, it's all about creating that connection. It's about giving to your people. It's about serving them, protecting them, guiding them. They may not always like you, but if they love you, they'll follow you. Um, yeah. And they'll trust you, right? So there's all of these different things. You mentioned, you know, mentorship being so much about somebody inviting you in. So now you've got these other three remainders. So, you know, I guess um, the assumption is that if you are a manager in one of these other quadrants, you can move yourself from one to another. You could be a buddy that starts to, you know, offer and ask for higher standards, right? You serve them and grow those people and mentor them to get them there. Okay. seems like that would be the easiest one because you've already got the relationship and the high connection. But when you're low on the connection, when you're either removed, it's like you first, you have to even start showing up to to even be able to enforce any sort of standards. So you got to start doing your own stuff and you have to start building connections from nothing. So that's got to be one of the most difficult. And I'd imagine at least the controller, at least if you're kind about it, people might give you the benefit of the doubt that like, okay, well, you know, they're just really high standard and they have a little bit of issue with the communication side. Maybe if they work on that. So have you seen like, is there in terms of like going in and looking at organizations, one, is there any sort of a hierarchy there that you've seen? Like the worst organizations are all removed and like the best are obviously all mentor. Is there some sort of a hierarchy? Yeah. Then is there um, a process by which you can kind of implement taking one type of management style to another? Is it like a clean house or is it a development? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So some, some, some leaders, some managers were like, I rotate between all four in a day. <laughs> like sometimes I'm the controller, sometimes I'm the mentor, sometimes I'm the removed guy. And so, so yeah, it is a very flexible thing and it can be changed. It can be adapted. It can be developed. We found if you were a mentor manager, you had five characteristics. Now, again, it must be earned, right? You can't just give yourself the title of a mentor. If I go and I mentor with somebody, if there's someone like, I'm like, man, I like myself best because I'm with you. You are the person that will connect me to my dreams because of who you are. 
right? Any great mentor, it's because of who they are and the qualities that they exude and how it helps other people. That's one thing I've learned is every employee is really asking the question of every boss, let me know when it gets to the part about me. Yeah. And and some people hear that and they go, well, those entitled little shining stars in my life, right? <laughs> like, like, let me know, right, when it gets to the part about me. But again, it's not so much about entitlement. It's about good business. It's about bringing humanity back into the workplace. And, and so you do that by, again, earning it, being the person that can play that role in the story. So here's the five characteristics, and this is how it can be developed. So if you're a removed manager, this will help you. If you're the buddy manager, this will help you. If you're the controller, this will help you. Number one is confidence. I call them the five C's of mentorship. Confidence was a mindset. Anybody that owned and earned the right of mentorship, they were confident. Like it, it created a sense of trust. They believed in what they were talking about. They believed in who they were and they believed in what they were doing. Confidence. Number two is credibility. They showcased their credibility. Their executives would showcase their credibility. I want to know your resume. What's your background? What's your history? You know, okay, you're the car sales manager. Have you ever sold a car? What's your background? Have you been in sales? Have you worked your way up in the company? How do you relate to me? Credibility. Number, number three was, was competence. You might have read every leadership book in the world, but, but understanding and actually really applying that is a different story, right? You might know everything about basketball, but can you get out and actually shoot a hoop? You know, when I was a drummer, I wanted to study with drummers who were gigging, who were working, not just some guy that, that studied drum theory. No, I want a practitioner. So competence mattered. And then the fourth one was candor. Interesting enough, uh, any great mentor has built those relationships so strong that honesty can exist. They have built a relationship where they can have tough conversations because it's, it's like the whole bank account thing, right? You put deposits of trust. They put deposits of connection, but then that's allowed them to withdraw because they've created a, a relationship that that honesty can exist. You know, I'm here for you. I want you to be better. I want to get you where you want to go. However, there's a few things you need to do. They, they had that ability to have those honest conversations. And it was received in a way where it was about advocacy, not just blame or let me teach you a lesson. And then, and then the last one is caring, the ability to just freaking care. The moment we stop caring for people is the moment you fail. And great mentors always cared for their people. I care about who you are. You're not just a cog in the wheel. You are a person and I care about you. Those are the five C's, man. And if you want to move into that mentor role, get better at, at those five C's. Oh, man, I love it. So in my book, The Lovable Leader, the three parts of lovable leadership are care, trust, and safe travels. So you have to care about your people. You have to care about the work that you do. Like you just have to care deeply, deeply care. Trust is at the center of all of it because you can't have honest conversations without trust. You can't, um, you can't really connect with someone if they don't trust you. So trust is essential and safe travels because you have to set a destination of where you're going and you have to ensure that people feel that they're going to get there safely, that you have their back, that you're going to make sure that they're going to get there safely and that they're going to transform by the time that they get there. Right. So you and I are in complete alignment with that. Everything that you've found through your work, I think is very validating for me personally in the work that I've put together. Um, but I, I thoroughly, I thoroughly support and believe every single Thanks, one of dude. these things. Yeah, It was just powerful, man. And 
and and I think the coolest thing, Jeff, is like when you when I saw it work, like when you saw like and think about it, right? Like think about like your your own life. I think about my life, right? Like the Mister Jensen's, like the, the teacher that changed my life. I think about. Yeah, man, I was going to ask you about that because uh, there are probably some people listening that haven't heard that story. Yeah, so so when I was a little kid, I I had a, I still do. I have a hard time sitting still. I always would move. My hands would move. I would just tap, 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 tap. Everybody saw it as a problem. I got sent to the principal's office. Principal told me to sit on my hands. I was called the twitcher, the tapper. And, uh, and one day, man, there was a teacher, and his name was Mr. Jensen, and he told me to stay after class. And I remember I was, I was, I was in the fifth grade, I was 10 years old. And I'm thinking I'm going to get kicked out of school. Like, this is it. I had been through the ringer. I was on the list. I was deemed a problem. And he looked at me and he said, listen, I've watched you and you'll do something with your right hand. And then literally at the same time, you can move your left hand. And he was like, he's like, Clint, I think you're ambidextrous. And I'm like, no, I'm Presbyterian. He goes, no, that's not what it means. That's not what it means. Uh, he's like, can you, can you tap your head and rub your belly? And I'm like, I, and I gave it a go and I could, I could do it. And then he's like, can you switch it? He's like, can you rub your head and then tap your belly and then tap your head, your belly and, and, and rub your head and literally back and forth without thinking about it. I could do it. I just had this independence of my limbs and he leaned forward and he said, I don't think you're a problem. I just think you're a drummer. And, and one thing that I saw in our research, Jeff, that was so cool is how great mentors created moments in the lives of their people. People are like, oh, you've done all this research as the undercover millennial. And I feel like all I've done is research on moments because that's all people talked about, right? We don't remember days. We remember moments. And I heard about how great leaders designed moments of care, recognition, potential, like moments of like, man, when, the, when you know, we were struggling with COVID and my manager just picked up the phone and called and asked how I was doing. Or that, that, that moment, like everybody was struggling and my family we were all sick. Everybody pitched in. They started a GoFundMe account or our, our whole company did DoorDash for our family. Or, you know, I, I was really wanting to get into a franchise myself and my manager wrapped around everything he had into me. And now I own a franchise. Like those are the stories I heard about advocacy, development, not the other stuff. And I'll never forget when Mr. Jensen, he reached back in his desk and he opened up the top drawer and he took out my very first pair of drumsticks. You still have them, right? I don't. No, dude, I freaking shredded those suckers. <laughs> I them so much. I mean, sticks, I, I've got some here in the studio, but I mean, they just get torn apart. I mean, you're beating them against metal rims and so yeah. they just they shredded they broke eventually and and now like now i'm like oh why didn't you keep them like it would be so cool to be like these are the sticks yeah, these but are the shredded sticks yeah yeah dude yeah dude as a 10 year old kid man i was just i was just playing drums i was just loving a new gift a new a new a new story yeah you didn't have the foresight to think like man in like 20 yeah. years this is going to be my thing yeah but you look back, you know, and it's like, man, he created and designed a moment and, and he's still alive. I call him Larry now. And uh, I asked him, we were at lunch three, three years ago. He just was at my house uh, like uh, two weeks ago. He just got over COVID actually um, and sur survived and is doing well. He's retired, obviously. But 
uh, and I asked him, I said, why me? You know, why was I the kid that got the drumsticks? You know, I was like, Larry, I've never asked you. Like you've taught thousands of kids, why me? And it was cool. He, he wrote back and it could kind of be the quintessential starfish story, but it, it was his thing. Then he said, every, every year, he said, I chose one kid, just one kid, because he learned early on as an educator that he couldn't save every kid. Mm-hmm. Like he just couldn't as a teacher, but he could save one. And he realized that focusing on individuals, it's just like what you were saying, Jeff, you focus on individuals and you treat individuals as individuals. It's not a one size fits all. And again, that's how we get to the part about people and what matters to them. And, uh, and, and, he, and that's how we did it. And I think that's how great leadership happens. It's individual. It's individually done one by one. That's how mentorship happens. So for me, have you ever talked to him about, um, kind of like, so you talked about like, why, why you, right. And he said, he picks one. Have you ever talked to him about like the mindset that kind of like, so, so I know that you think you, you talk about the idea that inside of every employee is something special, right? Like, so the, the, the ability to look inside people and see some greatness in them and, and your work as a motivational speaker, like, obviously that's going to be kind of baked into your DNA that like, you're going to see potential in people. And I love that. Um, but in terms of like your own personal story with Mr. Jensen, have you ever talked to him about kind of like what was running, what runs through his head to even be able to see that, right? Like you talk about advocacy and development, but like you can't get there unless you have a certain, you have to be looking for it, right? So like, what is, what is the mindset for someone who wants to um, adopt a, a posture of looking for those great things in people, seeing that potential? Like how, how is it done? Have you ever talked to Mr. Jensen about that or do you have any Absolutely. insight yourself? One thing that Larry has always said, he said, Clint, you were never a problem. I'll never forget. He, he told me that again just the other the, two weeks ago. He was like, I never saw you as a problem. Everybody else did, though. I, I think there's an extra C that I would add to my, you know, the five C's of mentorship. And it's not about mentorship, but it is a, a, another C. And I'd call it callousness. I met a lot of calloused managers, burnt out managers. Managers that were tired, exhausted. They were, they were the, the, the managers, females and males, that would just, every time, they would look at a situation, and it didn't matter how great it was. They would see a problem. They would constantly see a problem. They'd tear people apart. They'd talk about people behind their back. They'd look at a new initiative that the company was rolling out, and they would find every issue and why it could not be done. They would look at a generation, and they'd be like, I never hire millennials. Millennials? Ugh, horrible. We'll hire Gen X, we'll hire boomers, but we're not hiring millennials. Like they just saw problems. But then there were the, the, the mentor managers and the leaders, the managers, whatever you want to call them, that saw possibilities. They saw opportunity. They chose to see the good. They would look at a situation and they would see what was right. And they would realize it's, it's not about being like overly optimistic. It was about being hopeful. It was about, again, creating a perspective that altered a better reality. And that always influenced better behavior, always. And I'm like, and I, I don't really know. I, I don't know if I could answer Jeff and tell you like, how do you teach that? I think it, it's a, a lot of things. I think it's life experience. It's uh, different situations and things where you've learned. Um, there's patterns, there's habits. There's all sorts of ways to create that type of person. But, you know, Mr. Jensen loved being a teacher. And there's a lot of teachers that are burnt out and there's more teachers that do more harm than they do good. Mm-hmm. And in all of my, you know, when I teach educators and, and go into the education world, 
I tell them, I flat out tell them, if you do not have passion and a love for your job, find it. And if you don't want to find it, get out, leave. Jeff, there's so many managers that are in management because they were promoted. Yep. They, they wanted money. Doesn't mean you're a great manager. Yeah, Doesn't they were good at a thing. So somebody said, manager. you'll probably be good at managing people. You're good at a yeah. thing. You'll be good at managing yeah. people yeah. now. That's They're exactly translatable skills. Totally. Or, or you're not even good at managing people. You just killed it in sales. Or you were just a really good employee. So I don't know. We'll just Let's just promote you. Yeah, and we have an open slot great. and and there's and hiring externally is so much work. So like we'll give it to you. And no and, thing, by the way, we'll just drop you in it and like make it happen. Yeah. And there's a stigma with that, right? There's like if you're in management, like, ooh, right? Like there's a wow, congratulations. Like there's a sense of hierarchy. There's a sense of like most of the time they get paid more, right? You get a title. It looks good on a resume. And and there's been a few. There's been a few in our research of, of, of people that we've met that have stepped down. Right? You know that, that, that story of George Washington, right? When he was like, I'm stepping down. My time is done. Somebody else can do this better. There's other people that can serve the country more right now. I'm stepping down. And I think that's a cool thing when a manager can realize that sense of like, I'm burnt out. I am the calloused manager. I'm controlling. I'm not happy. Every day, I'm just mean. I, I, I'm not fulfilled. It's okay. It's okay. If you are that person and you're listening right now, it's okay. It's okay. You know, step down, move. Take a, a, another opportunity. Go to your supervisor. Go to your, your CEO, your executive team, and let them know, listen, I've lost the heart. I can't find it. And if you want to find it, find it. H ask for help, right? Great mentors were always being mentored. That's another thing we found. Great mentors were always being mentored. But again, if you just don't want to, it's okay. Move to something else. Write another story because you're doing more harm than you're doing good. I take it, man. Well, I want to ask you uh, a question on a, a slightly different uh, topic as, as we are uh, wrapping up. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about your work as a speaker because um, – as a, as a fellow speaker, I am truly in awe of your performances and the things that you've done and that the variety of stages that you've been on. You've been on some of the largest stages like I have ever seen with a drum kit, your part motivational speaker, part comedian. Like it, it's like, it's a fully magical experience from what I've seen, um, you know, in, in your, in your reels that you've got together. Can you, for uh, the people who are listening, who have an interest in getting into speaking, or maybe they are lightly into speaking, can you give kind of like a high level of how you got here? Like you didn't start on all of these enormous stages and you don't always populate enormous stages. You're kind of all over the place, but how did your speaking career come together? Because you've clearly got the energy for it. You've got the passion for it, but like on a, on a more like step by, was it the sort of thing where it was like, wow, the doors just seemed to open and like the Red Sea parted and now I'm, I'm able to do this. Or was it something that you kind of deliberately set your mind to and had, you know, you took your 10 years of knocks to get here? Yeah, dude. Great question. So I was, I was, I was miserable in a, a specific career. I graduated college. Uh, I had an eye disease I wanted to fly helicopters, uh, went to flight school. That was like the goal. My eye disease ended that career for me. And uh, so what do you do when you have no idea what you want to do with your life? You go to college. <laughs> it's a joke. Um, I went to college and I graduated and everyone was like, you got to get the job with the benefits and the stability. I went into the medical field, was absolutely miserable. 
But there was a mentor in my life who gave me a quote that changed everything for me. And he told me this quote by Oscar Wilde. And the quote says, to live is the rarest thing in the world. For most people just exist. And that is all. Uh, dude, it just like riveted my heart. I, I thought that was the coolest quote, like to really live. Because if you think about it, most people just exist, right? Yeah, you wake up, you do the nine to five and you're in a job and you're working for the benefits. You don't actually really love it, but it's a job. It pays the bills and you get the weekends off and you can go on a vacation here and there with your family. Everybody's got braces. We're fine. But to really live, like live is, is rare. And I wasn't doing it. I was existing every day. And I, I sat down with three of my buddies and they were all college grads. And I said, guys, wouldn't it be crazy if you could find a job that allowed you to do three things, and, and these were the three things. Number one, what if it allowed you to do what you love, play to your passions? It's the first P. The second was, what if it allowed you to provide in a way that was sufficient for you, right? And then three was purpose. What if it allowed you to do something bigger than yourself most of the time? So I posed the question and all my buddies were like, ah, dude, I don't think it exists. Like, look at a teacher, like their job's full of passion and excitement, but they're always hustling for something to do in the summertime to pay the bills. Or look at a doctor, doctors making lots of money. You know, they're able to provide, but the stress, the malpractice, the time they spend away from their family, like what you're talking about is so rare. And then dude, in that moment, it triggered the Oscar Wilde quote that had like literally haunted me since I had graduated college. To live is the rarest thing in the world. So long story short, after that, that conversation, two weeks after, I quit my job. I burned, I burned all the ships, and I jumped into the world of professional speaking. And that's been, yeah, six, six, seven years ago. And then later, later came the undercover millennial thing. And later came the business. But dude, I burned the ships and I jumped in and everyone asked, well, how did you just do that? How do you just quit a job and jump in? And Jeff, I have this crazy story. I have not shared this ever, but it's- ah, a new I podcast. love when this happens on my podcast. Yeah, never oh. it. It, it's, it's dude, it's weird. I don't really tell people this because it's weird. I, I freaking love E.T. Okay, I'm just going to say it. I love E.T. E.T., that movie, one of the greatest- uh, achievements in cinematic history you look at like the numbers on what et created in its day dude it pushed star wars out of the box office it was the number one film grossing film for 11 years straight until steven spielberg came out with jurassic park and knocked his own film off it is still revered as one of the greatest films of all time it made six billion dollars in just merchandising like the the score the lighting, but above all, the, the puppetry, the, the E.T. E.T. himself. And people are like, what the, like E.T.? Dude, it riveted me, scared the crap out of me as a kid. But as I've gotten older, like you watch that film and it is, it's a gem, dude. It is a treasure. And the magic behind that, there's a story and most people don't know this. Steven Spielberg shopped the idea of E.T. around. He went to Rick Baker and then he went to Stan Winston and he was like, I want to make this creature. And they came up with these ideas, concepts. They weren't really what he wanted. And then he went to a guy 
named Carlo Rimbaldi. And dude, Carlo went through 300 reiterations and revisions of E.T. The, the lines, the wrinkles, the eyes, how it looked. Steven Spielberg like wanted this like Albert Einstein mixed with like a, a Carl Sandburg design. And, and dude, they measured like the fingertips, like what, what the knuckle would look like. They, and, and they took all of this time to create such an iconic piece. They designed the success Oh, I lost your audio. I lost your audio. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. They designed the success is where I lost you. Yeah. So they designed the success. And I, I believe the beauty of any great business is found in the details. To be willing to like literally design everything that you want it to look like. To create an ET. That's how I did it. People are like, how'd you create a speaking business? I freaking was inspired by ET. I designed an ET. Now here's the thing. When, when they create a creature, I love creature creation. I think it's cool. That industry is the bomb. They start with a concept. Then it goes to illustration design. And then it goes to sculpting. They literally sculpt the maquette of, of, of the idea, the creature, what it's going to look like, what it's going to feel like. Then it goes to casting and molding. And then they, they create all of the mechanisms. How are the hands going to move? How are the eyes going to blink? And then after that, they create the fabrication. So the coloring, the skin, they, they put it all together. And then it's assembly. Then it's lights, camera, action. But it is that process that you build anything of significance. And so people ask, how'd you quit your job in, in two weeks? I designed every freaking detail of how I wanted my business to be like to the wrinkles, to the eyes. So in marketing and branding terms to the color of my website, the feel, what's my text, what's my messaging, how do I want it to feel? How will I do my videos? What's, what's my copy? What's my problem that I solve? Who is the audience? Everything. Every, and it was written out. My walls were covered with paper and ideas and I'm crafting, I'm molding, I'm literally building something. And I think there's a lot of people that talk about the idea, they talk about the dream, but they're not willing to design the ET, to get down into the nitty gritty and, and build it. And I also had a board of mentors, man. I went to the people just like what I talk about when I found in my research, who were the people that were confident, credible, candor, competent, and cared about me. Who are the people that were going to connect me to my dreams? Who were the people that were living and breathing a business that I wanted to build? And I did whatever it took to associate with those people. And that's it, dude. That, that's the secret behind it. I got messy in the details, did the non-glamorous stuff, built the ET, and found people that supported that and helped me to build it better. Dude, I absolutely love it. Your story is phenomenal. Uh, I love the work that you're doing like it, with every fiber of my being. Uh, I love being on the podcast with you, man. You, you are such an engaging and interesting guest. And I got to say, you know, I, I really feel like the, the term motivational speaker has been dragged through the muck and the mud for many, many years. And, and I think in a lot of time, in most cases, for very good reason. But in talking to you, I'm, I'm struck by just how 
Um, there's so much meat and substance to what you're saying. And it just comes packaged with the motivation and the inspiration and the excitement as part of it. It's like it, the, the, the product isn't the motivation. That's a feature of the product, which is intensely well-researched, well-thought-out concepts and ideas that are expertly communicated. Um, it's been a blast to have you on the show. Um, where can people go and learn more about you, pre-order the book, hire you to speak to their organization, whatever else? This is the time in the show to just talk about whatever it is that you want to promote. Thanks, dude. So uh, Amazon, obviously, for the book, uh, it is, it's available for, for pre-order uh, right now. We do kind of our big pre-order campaign uh, next week when we start. And then uh, for speaking and all things, anything else, uh, clintpulver.com. And then hit me up on Instagram too. I'm, I'm, everybody deserves a phone call. Everybody deserves a message. Hit me up on Instagram. If I can ever serve or help, let me know. Amazing. Well, you've been a phenomenal guest. This episode was incredible. I hope everyone that's listened to it decides to immediately hit the share button, tell someone else about it, inspire them and, uh, and help them understand how to be a better manager, a better leader. Uh, so I guess that would make this show above all else shareable.